Before 1863, the U.S. Constitution was described as a covenant with death and an agreement with hell. This was, statement was made by William Lloyd Garrison, and the reason he made such statements about our Constitution was because it permitted slavery. In 1863, January 1st, Abraham Lincoln finally fulfilled a promise that he made in his election in 1860 of the Emancipation Proclamation. He wanted to wait until the Union could make such a declaration from a position of strength, taking them three years to get to that point. Not eloquent in this proclamation, contrary to a lot of his speeches, He simply writes, on the first day of January, A.D. 1863, all people held as slaves within any state are designated part of a state. The people whereof shall then be in rebellion against the United States shall be then thenceforward and forever free. And the executive government of the United States, including the military and naval authority thereof, will recognize and maintain the freedom of such persons and will not act or acts to repress such persons or any of them in any efforts that they may make for their actual freedom. So, it's not one we often quote because it just doesn't sound good. But, as you might have gathered if you were listening carefully, it didn't totally uh, set the slaves free. It only set those slaves free in the rebellion states. Many of the border states that were uh, loyal to the Union maintain slavery In fact, it wasn't until two years later in 1865 when the 13th Amendment was added did the border states experience freedom, Delaware and Kentucky being the last two states uh, that had slavery uh, as part of our union. Abraham Lincoln, describing what he had done, said that we are like whalers who have been on a long chase and we have last got the harpoon into the monster, but we must now look how we steer or with one flop of his tail he would send us into an eternity. In other words, he says this emancipation proclamation is a tricky business. See, it changed the Civil War from uh, just state rights and put it focused on slavery. And then it enabled men, African-American men, to join the army, but also created this vast resource of economic workers, which created a lot of problems in New York City. And that time... There was a big rivalry between Irish immigrants and this new economic force. So much so that the Irish immigrants, hating the fact that they were being drafted into the army to fight the very thing that they thought would cause their economic ruin, rioted and created a mob over three days in which the federal government had to bring soldiers into with the end result of about a thousand people dying. This is the largest revolt against the federal government outside of the Civil War. It wasn't an easy thing. In fact, it wasn't too long after that. In 1896, there was a U.S. Supreme Court called Plessy versus Ferguson, in which it radically changed what was then understood under the 13th Amendment, and said that as long as facilities were equal but separate, it was constitutional to allow second-class citizens, if you will. Jim Crow segregation laws began in hotels and railroad cars and schools, creating these second-class citizens that flowed from this Plessy versus Ferguson case 
violating the 14th Amendment, which required equal protection under laws. This was done, this decision was done in eight to one uh, majority rule. One person dissenting against this view. This man being Justice John Marshall Harlan, and he writes in that case, the arbitrary separation of citizens on the basis of race is a badge of servitude wholly inconsistent with the civil freedom and equality before the law established by the Constitution. It cannot be justified upon any legal grounds. And until 1954, the United States continued with the understanding of second-class citizens. 1954, for almost 60 years, uh, we maintained this, this state until the decision of Brown versus Board of the Education, in which they reversed and overturned this uh, earlier decision in 1896. And then in 1954, with the Civil Rights Movement, many of, some of which uh, you remember, remember when schools were being integrated again, for most of our country's history, it was understood and normal and right for there to be second-class citizens. And the church was part of that too. Teaching, in many cases, that it was okay. Interesting, the ones who were pushing, uh, like Garrison and others, pushing against slavery, were, for the most part, believers themselves. And so that Christianity has this self-correcting aspect involved in its history uh, in society. And so what I want to present to you is that this Emancipation Proclamation occurred in a country that we look back on and we remember. And we, for many of us, we, we don't understand life with segregation. We don't understand the, this concept of a second-class citizens. It, it's kind of foreign for many of us. For others of you, you remember it. Uh, just as it was a vital force in our country, I'm just going to present to you that the scripture in Galatians chapter 4 is presenting an emancipation proclamation that is eternal in its scope. And just as it can be a tricky thing for the slavery to be, in, to be set free, or the slaves to be set free, it can be a tricky, tricky thing for us as humans to understand this freedom that God has granted us. What is this freedom and what does it mean for us in our life? And so I'm going to try to tackle this as Paul did in Galatians chapter 4, uh, verse 21, and going through chapter 5, verse 1. As we are studying verse by verse in the book of Galatians, uh, I just want you to understand the context is that uh, in this Gentile Jewish region of Galatia, uh, you have believers coming in, uh, understanding that they are one with God through the Spirit of Christ that has been done by the grace of God through faith. And then there are folks who are coming from Jerusalem teaching something different, saying, no, no, now that you've started with Christ, go back to the Old Testament and become a Jew. You must become a Jew now for you to be right with God. So much so that there was segregation taking place in the church where uh, Jews were sitting apart, separate from the Gentiles, and even Peter gets caught up in this. Paul confronts Peter in his, to his face and saying, this is wrong. There's no such thing as a second-class believer in Christ. There is a unity found here because we're all saved by the grace of God through faith, not by works of law. And so Paul is attacking this in, in Galatians. And you understand, though, 
For us, we think of that and think, you know, how did they get this? But remember, in that day and time, they didn't have the benefit of reading the epistles like you and I have. They had, for their scriptures, the Old Testament. And so they're reading the Old Testament and they're thinking, you know, how do I understand this now that I'm a believer in Christ? And the Jews of Jerusalem said, well, it's very simple. Just become a Jew. Just become a Jew and it all makes sense. And, and so we, we look at it and we think, this is very foreign to us, but you need to understand where they're coming from. Paul says, no, it's not by becoming a Jew. And he uses the Old Testament to explain this. And that's what he's going to do here uh, in our text this morning. He's going to use the Old Testament to explain being free versus being a slave. All right? And it's a complicated passage. I'm going to tell you that one of the best ways of understanding this is to be very familiar with Genesis. And it's not one of those books that a lot of us read unless you've been a member of Green Pines for a few years. Because we have been doing Genesis for about two years. And so uh, if you have been a member here for, for two years, then I'm going to do little, I, I don't have to do a lot of explaining to this for you. But I understand some of you haven't been here. I'd say go back and read Genesis. And if you want some explanation, go to the website uh, and you'll find an audio form of, of some explanation of that. Or if that's a little bit too high tech, you can go to the library and we can get some audio forms for you there uh, for you to listen. There's, there's something about knowing the book of Genesis that helps you understand the New Testament. So, uh, with that in mind, that long introduction, I want us to go to Galatians 4, verse 21. And we're going to read together through chapter 5, verse 1. And in honor of this being God's word, if you'll stand as we read this together, if you'll read silently as I read aloud to you. Tell me, you who desire to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. You may be seated. All right, before I launch into this comparison between Hagar and Sarah, slave and free, let's talk a little bit about what it means to be free. When Christ tells us that he will set us free, you need to understand it's not freedom to do wrong. Because I would bring to your attention that you already have that. Are you not free to do wrong now? Is it not hard for us or is it not easy for us just to do the wrong thing? And so 
what I'm presenting to you is not just freedom to do anything, because we've got already great freedom to do wrong. It's there before us. But the problem that we have is the freedom to have access to God. The freedom to do the good that comes from God. The freedom to have the love of the love that comes from God. Now, John Piper has helped me to explain this, and I can't really improve on what he says in describing this. And so let me just bring this to you what he says. In order to be free in the fullest sense, you have to have opportunity, ability, and desire to do what will make you happy in a thousand years. All right, let me say that again. In order to be free in the fullest sense, you have to have the opportunity, the ability, and desire to do what will make you happy in a thousand years. Another way to say it would be that there are four kinds of freedom, are but four stages of freedom on the way to the full freedom all of us long for. The freedom of opportunity to do what we can, the freedom of ability to do what we desire, the freedom of desire to do what will bring us unending joy. Another way of saying this is, is um, uh, well, a week ago, maybe two weeks ago, we were driving down and went by Darlington. Um, now, I'm not a race fan, and I, but I've been hearing that there, there's been a race recently at Darlington. I know that's a pretty big race. Um, I, I don't enjoy watching racing, but I think I would enjoy racing. Um, and to me, they're very, very different. Um, but I don't have really the freedom to race at Darlington. As I, as I drove by, I could see the track. I saw the door. Uh, no one was on the track. No one was guarding the door. And I found out later that sometimes they do let you race on the track. And I thought, man, how cool would that be to race on Darlington's track in my Suburban? <laughs> so, so I was like, <laughs> I thought, well, you know, it loses something there, you know. I can't afford that, for one. Um, but the freedom to be able to do that. One, I have to have the ability. I have to have the ability. I, to do that, I, I need to have uh, probably training to learn how to race at two to three, you know, 200 plus speed, uh, to, to have that ability to know the training, to have the car to do that, to have the, the access. So I need to have freedom of opportunity. One, someone says, hey, come on in and race on the Darlington racetrack. Two, the ability to know what I'm doing and having the car to do that. And then third, to, I could have the car, I could have the opportunity, but if I don't have the desire, then I'm not going to do it. All right. But then, not only to have the desire and the opportunity and the ability, what if once getting on there and I'm in my souped-up suburban, all right, and, and it's, it's going high speeds, I've got the training, I've got the opportunity, and the first corner I come into, I bank into the wall, and I die. So that's not a good thing either. So... The freedom to have, uh, to have the desire, opportunity, and the ability to do what will make me happy in a thousand years. All right? In other words, just because I can kill myself, maybe I shouldn't kill myself. Uh, that I need to be able to choose that which will bring the greatest joy. And that's a key thing. Because a lot of us choose things that bring immediate happiness 
but not the greatest joy. And in turn, we find that instead of giving us freedom, it enslaves us. And we're enslaved and addicted to something that is subpar and creating joy. And so we're constantly going back to it, back to it, back to it. And this never-ending cycle. And we say, well, I want to be happy and I want to have joy. And instead of going to God's designs, we go back to the same thing we did over and over again and really didn't quite satisfy. And now we're stuck. So when I talk about freedom, it's not the American idea of what we think about it. To do whatever you want. I would present to you there's a lot you can already do and you get freedom to do wrong. But it's the ability to choose that which is giving you the greatest joy and a thousand years later. The ability, the opportunity, uh, and the desire to do it. Is that, you got it? Alright? So, Jesus is saying... In John 8, I've come to set you free. Paul is saying in this passage, God has set you free through the gospel. And so he looks in verse 21. He says, those of you who are teaching that you've got to go back to the law, you've got to go back to this understanding is, is doing better. Tell me, he says, you who desire to be in the law, do you not listen to the law? In other words, he's saying the law itself teaches that you must have faith, that it comes by the promise of God, not by obligation that God has to you because you're such a good person. All right? Now, some of you are thinking, well, you know what, Pastor, I hear you, but it seems like I could love before God saved me. I could be honest before God changed my heart. I could be a morally upstanding person before God changed my heart. So what are you talking about freedom to do good? I've always could make good choices before. Let me just explain that a little bit more. I've shared with you before how God has made us to be in awe of him. And that when we're in awe of nature and all the things that God has made, when we see a beautiful sunset, a beautiful uh, mountain scene, or a beautiful beach scene, or when you see a baby being born and you're in awe and you forget for a moment all about your agenda, all about your, your plans, and you're just captured by that sight, and you think, wow, how much more should we be in awe of God who made those things? Who set those in motion and, and is in supervision of them. That's the term that God is awesome. That he fills us with all. And that the only proper response of being before a God like that. Is to be forgetful of yourself. And your agenda and your plan. And be enraptured with who God is. But our problem and our tendency is that when we realize that our problem is, is that we don't have a right relationship with God. That instead of being in all of God. We try to get God to be in all of us. How? I'm going to work really hard at being religious. I'm going to be working really hard at improving myself and doing good. If if some of you think, well, I've never really done that. All right. Well, let me ask you this. When bad things happen in your life, things that go against what you desire, what's your response? God, why'd you let that happen to me? What? I'm a good person. What? You had no right. God, I'm angry at you because you're not treating me fair. What are you saying? You're saying, God, I am such a good person. You are obligated to me to treat me in a way that I think is good. You know what that's based on? That's based on the idea that you are trying to impress God with your good works. Those good works 
no longer become good. They're expressions of pride. When you're saying, God, conform to me. Conform to me because I am so religious, I am so good, and now it's an, an expression that you yourself are worthy of God bending to you. Now tell me, is that good? Even if it is expressed in love and, and taking care of orphans, or giving of the poor, or singing in church, or whatever it may be, is that really good? To say that you're doing these things so that God can bow down to you? That, that's self-centered. And you're not worthy of that. So you see how even our good things become bad things. So when I talk about freedom to do good, it is to say that God becomes the center of who we are and all that we do reflects out of the beauty of who God is. That God can only do that not by giving us ten steps to improve ourselves, but by the gospel where God says, I see who you are, I see that you have sin in your life, and I give you grace so that now we identify ourselves not by how we perform, but by what God has done. I got a little bit of grief because I said on Mother's Day that we just need to understand that we're all terrible mothers. Um, and I'm kind of like the anti-Joel Osteen, evidently. Uh, but the, the idea there is that we don't get our identity based on our performance. And if we go down that road, it is something that will never end and it is cruel and it is, is going to destroy you and set up all kinds of false standards. We don't live our life based on our performance, but based on God's performance and what he's done. So, it's taken me a while to get to it, but I think these are important things to understand. That as we get into this, he says in verse 22, now let's look at the law. He says there's this idea of bondage, the idea of freedom. Verse 22, Abraham had two sons. All right, now we're going back to Genesis, Genesis 11, really all the way through 17. Um, and he actually had more sons than that, but he doesn't mention them at this point. They're immaterial at this point. Uh, he says, you just need to know. One was done by a slave woman, he's referring to Hagar. One by a free woman, referring to Sarah. Verse 23, the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. Now what is he talking about here? Well, uh, in Genesis 11, we find that Abraham and Sarah are of uh, old age. God gives them a promise that a son will be born. Um, and now they're well beyond, well beyond the fruitful years of having children. 15, he starts asking how, and so in Genesis 15, he starts asking, how does this happen, God? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a hundred and my wife's pushing it and how does this happen? And, and he says, maybe it's through my, my, my servant Eleazar. God says, no, it's going to be through you. And then in Genesis 16, they have the idea, okay, God's given us, it's, it's, it's going to happen. We're going to have our children. Uh, he's, he said it's going to happen. And then they, I think Sarah and Abraham kind of takes this idea that God helps those who help themselves. And so they say, well, all right, it's not happening. So Sarah says, why don't you get with my servant Hagar and um, we'll see children come. And, and, and a child does come from that. You see what it is? It is man trying to do what only God can do. Man trying to do what only God can do of their own devices, of their own plans. And so it says, according to the flesh. You need to understand, getting right with God is something only God can do. 
and us trying to improve ourselves and trying to obey the Ten Commandments and trying to, to say, I'm going to get right with God by doing all these things is us improving ourselves. And it's just like Sarah giving Hagar and saying, okay, God's will is going to be done through our plans. And so he says, it doesn't work that way. Verse 25. Or let me go on down. I think I skipped some here. It says, uh, one by a free woman, verse 23, the son of a slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now what happened? A few years later, uh, Sarah comes along, and lo and behold, God does a miracle, and they have a baby boy named Isaac, which means laughter. Uh, is this a joke? <laughs> Basically, is the idea. This is a joke that God's going to do this, and then later becomes a joy to them. And so it was understood by Sarah, by Abraham, this was a miracle of God. And so it was done by promise. Verse 24. Now he says these may be interpreted allegorically. Now I think for us to understand this, in our way of looking at it, it's actually more typology where he takes a past historical event and says it applies to a future similar historical event. He says these women are two covenants. All right. So Hagar represents the Old Testament. And then Sarah is going to represent the New Testament. One is from Mount Sinai, where the law comes, all right? The Ten Commandments, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. So what's, what is he saying? When the Ten Commandments, Ten Commandments were given, as he said in an earlier chapter, they were not given to give us life. They were given to show us our sin. They were given to show us how we're wrong, how we need a Savior, and to reflect God's ideal. They were given for this purpose. So it brings us into slavery. Now, Hagar is in Mount Sinai in Arabia, and she corresponds to the present Jerusalem. Now, this really upset his readers. All right? He says, present-day Jerusalem equals Hagar, which equals the Ishmaelites, which equals slavery. All right? The Jews in Jerusalem would have been extremely mad at this point. But what he's saying is that if you're coming to God by any ways apart from grace through faith, then you're coming as a slave. And it doesn't matter if you're Judaism or any other religion, if it's based on your works before God, then it is doomed to fail. Now, I was able to go to Jerusalem, and I realized that it is an extreme Great mission field. I got to meet with a, a pastor of believers uh, in Jerusalem, and he was talking about how difficult it is to be a believer in Jerusalem today. Because everywhere you look, you see these radical zeal of conforming to their teacher. They're wearing the same hats, the same hairstyle, the same clothing, everything conforming to their Jewish teacher with the hopes of that they can impress God. You go to the Welling Wall, I went to the Welling Wall. Um, and I just saw in the cracks all the prayers placed into these cracks and, and people everywhere flocking, praying that if I can pray here, if I'm vigilant and praying here, then maybe God will hear me. And he says, this system corresponds to Mount Sinai in Arabia, for she is in slavery with her children. Verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. All right. Jerusalem above is free. In other words, uh, we're not going to correspond to a city here on this earth, but we correspond to heaven 
Because this salvation that comes to us comes from heaven through the Spirit of God, comes within us and changes our hearts. Now, I'm going to put up a comparison chart here. Here's what he's presenting to you. You have two choices, two columns. You've got Hagar on one side representing Ishmael, the son of slavery, representing the birth according to the flesh, representing the Old Covenant, representing Mount Sinai, representing present Jerusalem. On the other side, Sarah, her son Isaac, the son of freedom, birth to the promise. And, t- and then in verse 29, he calls it the spirit. And then the new covenant, Mount Sinai, heavenly Jerusalem. Hebrews 11.10 says it this way. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. All right. Now, verse 27. For it's written, and now he goes to Isaiah 54 verse 1. And he says, this new Jerusalem. It's like Isaiah 45 or 54. Rejoice, O bear one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of one who has a husband. So Paul's bringing out this image of an old, barren widow coming to the gates of Jerusalem. And she's bemoaning the fact that she has no children. And Isaiah, after talking about the Messiah in 53, 51, 54, says, But wait a second. If you come, O woman, to trust in the Messiah, you will find that you will be bare no more But there will be many children who will come from you. What is he saying? This idea that salvation is done by the promise of God and you trust and depend on that, not trying to earn it. This concept, this idea is going to bear many children all over the world. So today, we have people who are African American, who are Hispanic, who are Russian, who are East Asian, South Asian, who are together one No second-class believers, but one group who are under this idea of salvation by grace through faith. And there are many children. So like God said to Abraham, you will have more children even than the stars in the sky, than the sands of the earth. Because within Abraham, no longer is just biological, but grafted with Abraham in Jesus Christ are people from all nations. Now, verse 28. Now you know, brothers, like Isaac... Are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So also it is now. What is he saying? Throughout time, as we look back in Isaac and Ishmael, there's a rivalry going on that's a type that demonstrates those who come to God by grace through faith versus those who are trying to work and earn for their salvation. They will always be at odds. There will always be persecution done by those who are earning their way to salvation, done toward those who are coming to God by faith in His grace. It has always been and it always will be until Christ establishes reign. So that is why today still, no matter where you are in the world, there will be those who are against this message that says, you mean you got to tell me I'm a terrible mother? <laughs> I'm a terrible father. You've got to tell me that you're a terrible person. I've got to come to the understanding first. Yes, you've got to come to the understanding that you have lived your life for yourself and in treason against the God who made you. And so you understand that and know that the only hope that you have is God saving you, not by something that you do. There is always going to be opposition against that because people to this day still want to be self-made. There's pride in that. 
And you can self-make yourself into all kinds of things, but you cannot self-make yourself to be a child of God. It is something that God alone does. So verse 30, what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Why am I so hard against legalism? Because the scripture is. Because Jesus is. That's why I I want to be so clear that if you're a member of our church and you think that you are right or better as a believer because of your obedience, because of some laws or traditions that you're doing, I'm trying to work as hard as I can against that thought to understand you're not better because of that. That is not of the gospel. You have been made right by Christ and nothing else but Christ. I'm afraid that some of us are in great um, jeopardy of working ourselves out of salvation, so to speak. Instead of trusting in Christ, we're trusting in what we do. And you get our confidence, not in Christ, but because of what we do. For instance, some of you might come up and ask me to pray for you. Because your thought is, well, God's going to hear the prayers of a pastor, right? I you know, I'll pray for me, but I don't have any confidence in that. I'm, I'm going to get the pastor to pray for me. Why, why do you do that? Is it not because you think because the pastor is so morally right that somehow God's going to hear that? Isn't that not flow from this legalistic mindset? Why is God going to hear your prayer? It's not because of how good or bad you are. It's because you trust in Jesus Christ. And the gospel comes in and says, I know how you've messed up and how you've got pride in your life. And I love you and I give grace and I extend it to you. You have access with me and the spirit now is in your life and is as much free in your life as it is in mine. And the only question now is, will I listen to the spirit of God? Well, listen to him. God will hear my prayer because the Spirit of God is talking through me and He can talk through you just as well. Because it's not based on how good you and I are. To get rid of this mentality. Cast it from you. Verse 31, So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. John 8, verse 31, Jesus said, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been a slave to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So the son sets you free. You will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word abides no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you've heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to him, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing what your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, 
If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I have come not on my own accord, but he sent me. He goes on and says, you're of your father, the devil. They persecuted him because they hated his message. What was the message of the Pharisees, the one he was talking to? If you just follow our laws, then you'll be right with God. And they got to call what the laws were. (laughs) And he says, that's not right. And they killed Jesus. And he says, see, it proves that you're not of faith, you're not of Abraham, you're of the father of the devil. You're not of God. I'm afraid that sometimes we, we read this and, and we too many times are like the Pharisees than we are like Jesus. And the reason is because we trust in what, that we have the right orthodox belief or that we have the right Bible or we belong to the right church and we trust in these things instead of trusting in Christ, in Christ alone. Jesus says, you will know the truth. What's the truth? The truth is I'm a terrible person. The truth is, I have no hope for salvation on my own. The truth is, God is still for me, despite that. The truth is, God is so for me that he sends his son for me. The truth is, is that when Jesus came for me, he lived the life that I should have lived. The truth is, that though he did that, he died a death I should have died. That's the truth, is that he paid the penalty of my sin that's the truth and the truth is is that i cannot have that gift from my own works the truth is is that the only way i can get that gift if i receive it as a gift that of faith i just trust in that the truth is i have nothing else to trust in the truth is there is no other name under heaven whereby man can be saved the truth is is no one else is speaking for you and so in response we try to speak for ourselves and say god please accept me Please accept me. Please accept me. Because, and it's what you put after that, that's the issue. It's because of how good you are, how sincere you are, or is it because, please accept me, because of what Jesus has done for me. Verse five, Chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. That's the decoration It's done. Christ has set you free through the cross. And then there's the imperative. It's only a second command what you find so far in Galatians. The first one is what we saw last week. But Christ be formed in us. This one. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. In other words, when I wake up each day and I think, you know what, God, there's all kinds of reasons that, uh, that you don't accept me. But... I see in the word of God that you do, that you've given me grace, you've given me forgiveness. I believe it. God, thank you. I'm trusting in what you did. And I'm going to stand firm. And the joy of the Lord becomes my strength. The spirit of God comes into my life and I trust in the Spirit of God and changes my heart, changes my desires. See, once now, not only do I have the ability and opportunity, now I have the desire. God's given me a new heart, new desire to love Him in ways I could not have done before. To love Him for His beauty's sake and not just for my own sake. To love others, not so that they will talk good about me, but to love others because it's what God is. 
That's a new way of love. To love flowing from God. The love flowing from the gospel. Stand firm in that. Don't go back into thinking, all right, um, I haven't been doing good, so God thinks less of me today. So I've got to do 10 things that are good today. And I'm working under obligation to get it right, get it right, get it right. You need to understand that your best thoughts, your best thoughts compared to who God is, that's such a world of difference. When you're at your best, it falls woefully short from who God is. He says that your righteousness is as filthy rags. So what do you do? Well, God, if I can't even think my best thoughts, what do I do? You know what? You just say, Christ, your spirit, live in me. I'm going to trust in you. It is the trust of God, or trust in God that he's looking for. Life is a test to measure whether you will trust him. And all the circumstances that come your way. Will you trust him? And let me just say it's probably revealed in how you pray. It's revealed in how you pray. I don't pray so that God will approve of me. I pray because God has approved of me. I don't pray so that God will accept me. I pray because God has accepted me. And the joy of that motivates me. Do you understand the motivation here? He says, I want you to live your life as free person. To do because you want to, because you can do. Whereas the slave will do because they have to and their desires are elsewhere. That's why he says when you give, I want you to give not grudgingly or of necessity. For God loves a cheerful giver that it flows out of your heart. So we are constantly going to God and say, God, change my heart. Now here's the danger. Just like America got into they had the Emancipation Proclamation. Then they go back and say, well, you know what? It's not quite all that. And they create these second-class citizens. Don't go back. Don't go back. Let this be the final decoration in your life. That you come to God by his gift and his gift alone. And watch how that changes your life. As he goes on in next chapter, he's going to say, all right, now let's see what it looks like when we follow Christ, when, we are, when we're trusting in him and not in slavery. And he's going to show us what life looks like when the Spirit of God is at reign in your life. So I encourage you to keep on reading. And it shows us how good life can be. Done with joy, done with love, done with God. The good news, God's for you. God is for you. The question is, do you trust in that? Do you believe in that? And you can't trust in yourself and that at the same time. Let's pray.